This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, if you're a soccer mum or dad or indeed a weekend player yourself, listen up. Some news for you on heading the ball. Can a robot help a child stay socialised with friends if he or she is missing school due to an ongoing illness? Disturbing findings from a study of people turning up at hospital unannounced and reducing the chances of dying from lung cancer. Lung cancer causes nearly one in five cancer deaths worldwide. That's more than any other tumour. When someone's diagnosed with lung cancer, on average, they've only a 15% chance of still being alive in five years. The main reason is that the diagnosis is made too late for surgery to be effective. And it's still the case that surgery is the best hope for curing lung cancer. For the last decade or two, there's been an at times acrimonious debate about whether high-risk smokers should be offered CT scan screening in the hope of more people being cured. A few days ago, a paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine which may change that debate. Now, around 9,000 people died of lung cancer in Australia last year. If the findings of this Belgian-Netherlands study were to apply here, that would mean up to 2,000 of these people might still be alive. Cancer Australia is Australia's peak body formulating cancer policy and they've been conducting an inquiry into what's called high-volume CT screening for lung cancer. Its chief executive is oncologist Professor Dorothy Keefe. Thanks for coming into the health report. Thank you for having me. So tell us about this study. This is a really interesting study and we've all been waiting for the results for quite some time. Why it's so interesting is it was a large number of people, about 15,000 people, mainly men, but a a small significant uh, number of women. And it was done over a long period of time. They followed these people up over a 10-year period. They did multiple screens with um, low-dose CT scan. And they found that there was a 25% reduction in the screening group in In lung cancer. It was in men. It was 33% in women, wasn't it? It was, but I think the numbers are a little small in women. So we try not to be too over-optimistic there. So let's get into the weeds a little bit because there are various controversies about lung cancer screening. So there was a study a few years ago in America, 50,000 people, not 15, but 50,000 people comparing CT scanning with chest x-rays and it showed the similar mortality reduction. But their problem was they had a high rate of finding these things called nodules in the lung, which meant that people had to go for more scans and maybe even a bronchoscopy, risking a collapsed lung. In other words, and cost. What was the finding here? Because that's what put people off is, well, it's fine, you find you save 25% of people, but you also cause harm to a lot more. Well, that was very interesting in this study. They find a, found a much lower rate of other nodules that didn't need treatment, and they found a lot lower rate of what they call overdiagnosis, which is where you diagnose something that might not kill you in your lifetime. So these these results are much better. They probably did a better sort of CT scan. They looked at volume of the nodule, not two-dimensional size. And I think that's made a big difference too. Right. And obviously the radiologists get a bit better at reading it. And the introduction of AI helps the radiologists and all sorts of things are making it easier. Now, if I remember rightly from this study, I think they had five CT scans over five years, and then they followed them up for 10 years. Now, with breast cancer screening, with bowel cancer screening, it's basically annual or, you know, and with with cervical cancer screening, it's now already five years, but it's a regular screening interval. Let's jump ahead and imagine you were implementing this. Is five years enough and then you don't do it ever again or do you have to do it annually? Well, I think that's something that the inquiry is looking into, actually. We're, we're saying, you know, have we reached the time where the evidence shows us that we'll save enough lives by doing this? Is it cost effective? 
if we're going to do it, what is it going to look like? How often are we going to scan and for how long? And and this is a this is the first potential new screening program in the last 15 years. And so technology's advanced a huge amount. So what you would do this way is you would tailor it more to the person's individual risks. So any of the risk factors for smoke, for lung cancer that you might have would be built into an algorithm, a calculation that would allow you to predict how often someone might need screening and for how long. Because, I mean, colonoscopy is not the right thing for bowel cancer screening, but there has been evidence that if you do have a colonoscopy, you probably don't need another one for five or ten years, depending on what they find. Is it like that? If you haven't found a nodule or something in the lung, you're unlikely to? Look, I think that's probably true, but we don't have the same level of understanding of the progression of a lung cancer as we do with the colon cancer. So, you know, colon cancer progresses from a little polyp to something a little bit, you know, it adds uh, mutations and gradually builds up into a malignancy. With lung cancer, we don't have such knowledge of the natural history, but it is quite likely that if you get these things early and take them out, then you're not going to get into trouble for longer. So the key here is who gets screened. So with with breast and bowel cancer, um, cervical cancer, it's everybody, essentially. All healthy people get screened. Um, Is it all smokers? It's probably all people who have smoked for a certain length of time at a certain density. So it's what we call pack year. But it's it may not just be them. So the another part of the inquiry is looking at what the risk factors are that you put into the model to determine who needs to be screened. For example, we know that um, lung cancer is a much bigger problem in our Indigenous community than in our non-Indigenous community. And you might need to start screening a decade younger in the Indigenous population than the non-Indigenous population to pick up the cancers for various reasons. And there are now quite a few people diagnosed with lung cancer who've never smoked. Now, I was going to ask you about that, and they're mostly women. Indeed. And at the moment, we don't have a way of predicting they're getting uh, cancer, and we don't have a way of saying we could put them in the risk group to have screening. But it's quite likely that over the next few years... We, we will develop the ways of predicting some genomic testing, whatever. And then we could build that into the screening program. So if we have a screening program, we want it to be agile. We don't want it to be set and forget because the science is changing so quickly that we actually need to be more reactive. And the key here is obviously, finding, as I said in the intro, finding people who, are op- who can have an operation, part of their That's lung right. removed. Mm-hmm. The, how, how is chemotherapy progressing for, for lung cancer? Well, actually, that's a very interesting point because uh, this changes the cost-effectiveness model. So the last time cost-effectiveness, cost-effectiveness was looked at in Australia, even though lung cancer screening could save lives, it costs so much money. But the inputs into the model have changed in the last few years because we now use immunotherapy to treat stage four lung cancer, metastatic lung cancer. And it's very successful. Very expensive But it's too. very expensive. Cost of fortune. Indeed. So if you put in your model, whether it's more oh, so effective... the trade-off is, the trade-off is, the trade-off is, high, is higher exactly. for screening. So the, the balance is tipping because the screening might save you even more money than it would have saved you five years ago. Um, and stigma? I mean, part, I, think, I suspect part of the reason for your inquiry is that people think that smokers deserve everything they get. Stigma is a terrible business in lung cancer. So we did a study recently that showed that one in five people thought that people who were diagnosed with lung cancer had brought it on themselves. Now, you this don't say is, that about heart disease or exactly, bowel cancer. Exactly. This is complete rubbish. 
it's not the individual's fault that they were sold these cigarettes, became addicted. It's big tobacco that's really the you know, the problem here. And you're quite right. We don't stigmatise any other cancer, even if it might have been affected by going out in the sun or eating too much barbecued meat. So stick with the science. Absolutely. Dorothy, thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thank Professor you. Professor Dorothy Keefe is Chief Executive of Cancer Australia. That inquiry, I think, will report later this year. This is RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. That was Caitlin Cooper of Western Sydney Wanderers heading a goal against Perth Glory a few weeks ago. Soccer is booming in Australia. Lots of parents prefer it to traditional ball sports because they worry about injuries to the head and neck. But there's one part of a soccer game that has researchers worried, <clears throat> and it's the practice of heading the ball, which some players can do many hundreds of times during a season, and not just elite players. A recent study has reported on findings on memory tests and compared them to players who head the ball a lot or a little, and whether they carry a gene called ApoE4, which raises your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Michael Lipton is Professor of Radiology and Psychiatry at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. When I first started studying heading in soccer, which would have been around 2011, there was not very much known specifically about heading. There was certainly information about the cognitive performance of players in general, and some of that was attributed to heading or other head injuries, but there really hadn't been studies that had looked specifically at the role of heading as opposed to other types of events like concussion and collisions. So tell us what you did in the study. We're reporting from a large study of about 400 adult amateur players, not pros. They're not university teams. They're people who have jobs and go to school and are playing recreationally. And what we do is assess how much heading they do, and then we examine their brain function and brain structure using some computerized neuropsychological tests as well as MRI. And then we also take a profile of the DNA of each person from their blood. In this study, what we're reporting on is the relationship of the amount of heading a person has done over the prior year and how they perform on a test of verbal memory. It's essentially the ability to correctly remember a moderate size grocery shopping list over a period of about 20 minutes. And we looked at whether having a specific gene called the apolipoprotein E4 gene variant has any impact on the likelihood for someone who heads more or less to have better or worse brain function in the area of memory. How do they remember? I mean, this is ironic, but how do they remember how many headers they've done? Nobody remembers that. Uh, That's what I imagine, clear, particularly if they've got yeah, brain damage. Just to be clear, yeah. We've actually done a fair amount of work in the early parts of this study to develop methods for estimating the amount of heading that a person does over different periods of time. And this has been validated by having trained observers watch from the sidelines. And so in this study, we're actually dividing the players up into four groups from lowest to highest amount of heading. So what did you find? We found that heading, and in particular, high amounts of heading, are associated with worse performance on 
this particular memory test. And there seems to be a threshold level in the neighborhood of a little over a thousand headers per year, which may sound like a lot, but it's not uncommon. And what we find is that people above that threshold, which is the upper 25% or so of the players, that they have a greater likelihood of having worse function on this particular memory test. What we've done new in this study is we've then looked at the gene in these individuals and taken a look at how having what we refer to as the E4 gene variant and we should oh, just explain this variant now because yeah. it is associated with a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease later in life. Yeah, the apolipoprotein epsilon 4 allele or E4, and a person could either have none, one, or two of these. It is associated with many different things, including cardiovascular disease, but it's most well known for increasing risk for Alzheimer's dementia. It's also associated with earlier onset. And what is a little bit less known is that in traumatic brain injury, in particular in more severe traumatic brain injury, the E4 allele is, or the E4 gene is associated with worse outcomes, and in particular in the area of cognitive function, such as memory. And that played out so in the study. What we found is that when we look at the players who do a lot of heading and those who do very little heading, and we stratify them based on the presence of this gene, we find that if you don't do very much heading, even if you do have the gene, it doesn't seem to affect your risk. But if you look at the people who do a lot of heading, the risk is significantly elevated. It's by something like a factor of four if you do have this gene. So it's not necessarily just having a lot of exposure to headers over time, but if you have this particular gene, it's very possible that that may increase your risk that that heading will have an adverse effect. And on the other hand, if you don't have it, it may not be as detrimental. But you still might get a bit of verbal memory loss. It's just the, the, the risk is higher if you have the gene. The risk is substantially higher if you have the gene. So are we starting to get to a place where you regulate heading in soccer? Secondly, do you start doing gene testing for people who are taking their soccer to an, another level or indeed rugby or indeed American football? Yeah, or even in other settings such as combat. I would frame it as using genetic profiling to assess an individual's risk. And even without the genes, we can talk about controlling the amount of heading. Because it affects everybody. Yeah. It just affects some people right. worse than others. And the second question I've got is anything from the brain scan that suggests that they're increasing the risk of dementia 40 years later? What we find is that using specific types of MRI, we can detect changes in the brain even before there's anything detectable in terms of cognitive performance. A concern for the sports authorities. Look, thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Michael Lipton is Professor of Radiology and Psychiatry at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. Coming into hospital is obviously a sign that you're either not well or need some kind of care. The question is, how do you go after you get home? A Canadian study has come up with a really disturbing finding for people aged over 65 who have what's called an unplanned admission. Really disturbing. Kieran Quinn is a general physician in the Sinai Health System at the University of Toronto. Many patients are admitted to hospital and a lot of different studies have looked at the risk of death following hospital admission. But those are for all comers who have multiple prior admissions to hospital. 
And what we know is that hospital admission in and of itself and recurrent admission is a highly predictive of future death. What we don't know is in people who had never been admitted to the hospital, what was their risk of death in a long and short-term time period of follow-up? Can I just clarify what you just said? Is that all comers' risk of death or only in people who are older? Our study, we chose to focus on older adults and specifically those who are over the age of 66 for two reasons. One, we know that age is the strongest predictor of death and so the older we get, the more likely we are to die. So we wanted to focus on a population of people who were higher risk to begin with. Secondly, we took advantage of the fact that medications are covered by the government here in Ontario, in Canada, when you're over the age of 65. So it allowed us to get a general sense of how many different medications these patients were on, and by that extension, how sick they were or how many comorbid diseases they might have as a consequence. And so you specifically focused on people who hadn't been in the hospital for the previous five years? That's right. We looked back five years to see if they'd ever been to an emergency department or a hospital and excluded those individuals, which worked out to be about two-thirds of the population of Ontario over the age of 65. So two-thirds of the population of Ontario over 65 had been to an ED or had been in hospital over the previous five years? That's right. It was quite a large number to begin with. Were you surprised at that? In somewhat. I mean, I, I found that number to be quite large. That being said, People visit the emergency room for various different reasons, and whether they're admitted or not is a different decision at that time. But I certainly was surprised that that number was quite large, yes. So you looked at the remaining one-third who hadn't been. That's right. Just under a million adults over the age of 66 who had not been to an emergency department or hospital in the previous five years. And what were the outcomes you were looking at? It was actually quite a simple descriptive study. We simply wanted to measure what percentage of people were no longer alive or had died at five years following the first admission to hospital, whether that was a planned admission or an elective admission for something like a hip replacement, for example, whether that was an unplanned or emergency admission to hospital for a pneumonia or a heart attack, for example. We also looked at people who presented to the emergency department and were sent home, so were not admitted to hospital. And lastly, we looked at people who were neither admitted to hospital nor visited the emergency department and followed those folks five years forward in time to measure that risk of death. And what did you find? Three main things that were quite surprising to us. First, the risk of dying was substantially larger than myself and many of my colleagues had expected. So after five years in older adults with their very first unplanned hospital admission, 40% of those people had died, regardless of the reason that they were admitted to hospital. And we compare that with about 10% in people who were admitted with a planned admission to hospital or in those who went to the emergency department were sent home. And in the group of individuals with neither hospital admission nor emergency department visit, their rate of death was about 3% at that five-year mark. The second finding that we thought was quite surprising was there was, as expected, an age-related gradient. So the older you got, the higher proportion of people that were dying across all groups. But we saw the largest difference in the youngest age group of the 66 to 70-year-olds. That's where the biggest discrepancy between those who were admitted in an emergency situation compared to the other groups. So lastly, the third main finding was that Regardless of the reason, there were several conditions that some might consider relatively benign. So urinary tract infection was the example we used in the paper, where you had a substantial number of people dying at five years after that. 
And so the idea is that this hospital admission is a sentinel event. It's a significant event in somebody's life, regardless of the reason they go there. And that's where we hope we're triggering important discussions about future care. I mean, these are just extraordinary numbers, counterintuitive. It doesn't matter, in fact, what they came in for. It was just that they themselves felt it was important enough to turn up at an emergency department. Secondly, the younger you were within that age group, the more risk you had of dying. So there's something going on here. What is it? Is there anything in the last five years, even if they didn't go into hospital, that would indicate their increased risk of dying that their general practitioner might have missed, for example? What are the limitations of our data? But it's an excellent question. Because we don't have prior hospital admission data, which is primarily how we determine somebody's diseases that they may have, we're limited to, as I said, just the medications that they're on. And we did see that there were some differences between the number of medications that people were on, and we did see some differences in the group of people and how many physician visits they were experiencing over the year prior to the follow-up period. But I don't think it's a matter of their primary care physicians or other healthcare providers missing anything. I think it's just that this signifies that their physiological reserve is reduced to the point that they need hospital admission for something, and that something may play out to be a very serious condition in the following five years. And there is some evidence that the chances of a bad outcome after hospital discharge can be reduced if, in fact, you see your GP within a week of getting out of hospital. Kieran Quinn is a general and palliative care physician in the Sinai Health System of the University of Toronto. Tens of thousands of children receive a diagnosis of chronic illness each year, things like cancer and cystic fibrosis. And in many cases, that will necessitate the need for that child to miss chunks of school. They might need to spend weeks or months in hospital or be so ill they simply can't attend. The impacts of those absences are poorly studied, and the solutions may be a little unorthodox, as James Bullen reports. Ethan Waller was like any other kid. Uh, I played soccer, really enjoyed school, and... Like going out, seeing my friends a lot. Until myalgic encephalomyelitis, sometimes known as chronic fatigue syndrome, turned his life completely upside down. It's not like normal tired, it's different. It makes you not be able to think straight. The condition left him bedbound for months on end. He couldn't play piano, couldn't go to school, couldn't see his friends. It was tough because I didn't want to change my lifestyle. I wanted to keep doing what I enjoyed. It's very hard social isolation. He was just a really bright, active kid and irrepressible. He just had so much love and zest for life. This is Ethan's mum, Shelley. So we fell in love with Ethan immediately and most people couldn't help but do the same. He definitely, right from very early, loved his music, his soccer, chess, maths. <laughs> and we had a pretty good life. We used to go camping around about 12 times every year. A lot of time spent on um, Fraser Island, Morton, Stratty. When you live in Brisbane, you're pretty lucky to have the outdoors so close. And we made the most of it. You know, he was a really fit, active kid. Until he crashed. It started with glandular fever when Ethan was 12 years old. But he never really got better. Eventually, Ethan got the diagnosis of myalgic encephalomyelitis. The only times that we could leave the house were to go to the doctors 
there was a long period there where he became so severe that he couldn't read a book. <laughs> this is a kid that was reading Harry Potter when he was six. It was just extraordinary. He stopped playing piano. The house went silent. We knew just how serious and severe it was at that point. Ethan's story isn't unusual. About 60,000 kids in Australia miss significant periods of school each year because of a chronic or critical illness. It's quite a long list and it's, it's quite frightening what happens to them if they can't stay connected. Megan Gilmore is the co-founder of Missing School, a not-for-profit organisation that researches the impact of these school absences and how to stop kids from falling through the cracks. She says a range of conditions can cause lengthy periods of time away from school. The first one that would naturally come to mind is cancer. But of course, there's also cystic fibrosis, transplant situations, heart, lung. There's also, you know, diabetes even or asthma can create recurrent absences throughout the school life. And then there's this emerging group of students that we're seeing that looks like a diagnosis around chronic fatigue syndrome, ME. A 2015 report, co-authored by the Missing School Organisation, outlined the impact these absences can have. There's a long list of side effects that the evidence reports. This includes difficulty in maintaining relationships, falling behind academically, increased anxiety, reduced connection to school and engagement with school. Megan says this is a hidden issue. Until a couple of years ago, we didn't even really know how many kids were missing large blocks of school. There's no data collection, really, and there's no funding, there's no practice guidelines, and it's not the failing of teachers, which is often said. It's a governance issue and an accountability issue. Because that governance infrastructure isn't there clearly, we don't have a full evidence base around what works, and that's what's needed. More awareness at a systems level is one thing, but what about the kids missing out on an education in the meantime? Well, the not-for-profit is also working on practical solutions. And that involves robotic avatars. It was explained to us that in the long run, Ethan may get better, but that he may never be able to recapture what he's lost socially and educationally during this period. So that's why I became really (laughs) determined to try and find some unorthodox ways to hang him in there. He was a kid that loved learning, so it was just a shame to see him lying around and on those occasions and those days when he was well enough to do something, to not actually just keep him ticking along with his education. If they couldn't get the physical Ethan to school, maybe they could get the virtual Ethan there instead. He logs in on his computer at home, and in the classroom, a robot, A long pole with a tablet and camera attached to the top and wheels on the bottom whirs into life. The robots stand in the classroom for the student who can't be there, allows them to dial in, be seen and heard, see and hear their classmates and even move the robot around as if they're actually there from their laptop in hospital or at home. The very first day that Ethan logged in, he was just presented with a whole sea of happy faces that were smiling and and pleased to see him and so excited that he could join them back at the school that he'd been since he was seven years old. I feel that that has got to help with the healing. It's not a cure, (laughs) but the fact that he can feel that someone sees him, that someone responds to him every day, it just helps him feel human. It's like I can 
be in the classroom and interact with everyone without having to go through the stress of actually being there without it. It's hard to get motivated. So far, 77 students have these robots, and a pilot study is looking at how well the robots work, the outcomes they improve, and whether they should be rolled out across more schools. What we're hearing from teachers and parents at the other end, there's a huge amount of support for relationships and friendships, and classroom connection and participation are the two things that are most named. Also increased wellbeing and a sense of normalcy. What we want to do now is put that through a proper research protocol We're positioning for a research grant through the NHMRC and really we want to take an approach of mass socialisation now across Australia but also to overseas countries to demonstrate what we've learned. James Bullen with that story. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report and I'll look forward to your company next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.